The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. If you work hard enough, anything is possible. Anyone ever hear that saying? Anybody? If you work hard enough, anything is possible. Do you remember when you found out that wasn't true? Certainly, hard work makes many things possible. We're not called to be lazy, but if you work hard enough, not everything is possible. I think I realized this in junior high. Um, I grew up, as many of you know, I love sports and I love playing basketball. And I remember most of my childhood, every day after school, going to play basketball with my friends. We'd even go outside when it was so cold that the net was frozen and we would shoot a hoop. And afterwards, we have to jump up and knock it out because we'd get stuck in the net. And as I grew up, I I played with youth sports, and I went to special camps to learn how to play basketball better. And then I made it to junior high, and it was the tryout. And you already see where this is going, but I tried out, and I did everything I could. I worked extra hard. I ran hard. I, I respected the coach. I did everything I possibly could. But in the end, I was cut from the team. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to become the trainer this year. And so... I became the trainer, and I did all the dirty work that a trainer does, and I went with the team to the games, and I even got the same shoes they had. I ran the wind sprints with them and did everything I could just to prove to the coach that he had no idea what he was doing by cutting me, right? That's always the case, isn't it? The coach doesn't know what he's doing. That's why I got cut. So next year, I tried out again, and again, was cut. Then there was my friend, Brian. Brian could really care less about sports. He liked TV and video games and things of that sort. But his parents urged him, Brian, this is good for you. Get out and go play some sports. And so Brian kind of, you know, waffled his way through the exercises and through everything. But Brian was 12 inches taller than everybody else. And so Brian made the team. The reality is, is that even if you work very, very hard, not everything is possible. The reality is sometimes you can do everything right. And it still turns out very, very wrong. What do you do in those situations? What do you do when you do everything that you're supposed to do? And it ends in a spectacular failure. How do you reconcile in your heart that we have a good God, a loving God, and yet when you are faithful to do what God has called you to do, sometimes it doesn't work out the way that you had hoped. For some of you, I know you have followed God's convictions in your heart. You've gone into work and you have, you have, you have opened up a dialogue about a shady operation. And as a result, you are labeled as not being a team player, and you are passed over for a promotion. Some of you have devoted yourselves to ministries in the past to share the love of Christ, but then it ends in the collapse of a ministry and backbiting and nasty stuff. Some of you have been committed to marrying the Lord, and you're devoted to that, and yet many years later you are single and still looking. Some of you have raised your kids in the church in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You brought them to Awanas. You've done Bible studies with them. You've done prayer time with them. And yet when they graduate the house, they also seem to graduate from church. Some of you have prayed for your children who have been sick. 
and hurting. And yet they're not healed and they die. And so how do we reconcile this idea of a good God? And yet when we do everything right, it still goes wrong. What do you do? Do you give up on believing in the goodness of God? Do you grow bitter towards him? Maybe you blame him. Maybe you argue with him. What do you do in this time? Well, in today's passage, we are going to see an instance where Moses does everything right. And the situation turns out horribly. And we see an example of many things not to do. But hopefully by God's grace through this, we will see what God calls us to do, what an appropriate response is to suffering and the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. If you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. We'll read the whole chapter. Um, It's page 48 in the Red Bible and page 93 in the Children's Bible. Again, to catch you up to speed, the Israelites are in Egypt. They are in slavery, being oppressed by Pharaoh. Moses was in Midian. And the Lord comes to him in a burning bush. It says, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. After a few objections lobbed out there by Moses, God answers them, and Moses responds in obedience. He gathers his family, and he heads off to Egypt. As he is headed there, he encounters his brother Aaron, as the Lord had promised, who comes to be a co-laborer with Moses and to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh. And Moses tells Aaron everything that the Lord has done and said. And so Moses and Aaron goes back to Israel, and they meet with the elders of Israel. And they tell them all the things that they have seen and heard. And then we read at the end of chapter 4, just prior to today's passage, In verse 30, it says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So far, so good. Everything is going awesome. Everything is going better than planned. The people of God are responding to the calling of God, and they are trusting in him and worshiping him. But then we get to chapter 5, and things go off the rails. And there is this downward spiral of brokenness. Exodus 5.1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses, with a courage that we have not seen in him before, comes before the most powerful man in the world and tells him that he must obey the God of the slaves and let the people go. And then Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, moreover, I will not let Israel go. As we cover this chapter, what we will see is this downward spiral in which Pharaoh persecutes God's people. 
because of Moses' obedience. And in turn, God's people blame God's messenger, Moses and Aaron. And in turn, God's messengers question God's goodness. And so we see the brokenness and the suffering that comes as a result of obedience. But we'll also see the hope that we have in our sovereign, gracious, loving God. Before we dig in, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come this morning not claiming to be innocent of any wrongdoing, but knowing that there are many times where we have followed you obediently, and yet the response has been suffering. And God, we are often confused by this, Lord. We often don't understand why, when we do things the way that we should, that things don't turn out the way that we hoped. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would lead our hearts in the paths of righteousness, the paths of freedom for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by looking at Pharaoh's response to Moses. Let's start in verse 1 again. Afterwards, after the Israelites received Moses's proclamation and believed and worshiped the Lord. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh believed himself to be God. The Egyptians believed Pharaoh to be a God. And as we'll see even later in the chapter, even the Israelites believed Pharaoh to be a God. But Moses comes boldly and courageously and says to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord. Whenever this is inscripted in the Old Testament, it means that they are prophesying on behalf of God, that they are speaking God's words themselves. And so Moses comes as an authority from the Lord telling Moses to let the workforce of Israel go to worship the Lord God. This idea would have been ridiculous to Pharaoh. To let the people go, surely they would have just kept on going. And so Pharaoh responds mockingly, Who is the Lord? Who is this God that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Well, this very casual question, mocking question, really lays out the rest of Exodus for us. Because for the rest of Exodus, God is going to show us exactly who he is. And throughout the Exodus, he's going to show Pharaoh who the Lord is and why he should listen to him. As we walk through the Exodus and as we walk through these spectacular plagues, we'll see that time and time again, as God delivers these plagues and relieves these plagues, he does so saying, this is how you know who I am. This is how you know who the Lord is. For example, in Exodus chapter 7, it says, Thus saith the Lord, by by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff. That is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Exodus 8.22, when God sends swarms of flies upon Egypt. 
It says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And then finally, in Exodus chapter 8, just keep ticking along. Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said, be it as you say. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so Pharaoh mockingly says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And what Pharaoh will find out is that the Lord is the God of the entire universe. And that's why he should obey him. Through the next several chapters, God is going to be giving Pharaoh and Moses and Israel a theological lesson on who God is, on his power, on his might. Through the judgment of the Egyptians and through the delivery, deliverance of Israel, God is going to show the world what a great God he is. The passage continues, verse 3. We're going to read all the way down to verse 14. Verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor and, it, and pay no regards to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when they were, there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? What we see in this passage is that suffering doesn't only happen when we're obedient to the Lord. But many times suffering happens because we're obedient to the Lord. Moses and Aaron were obedient to God's calling. And as a result of it, the people of Israel were scattered across Egypt. The people of, Egypt, of Israel were burdened with gathering their own straw. They suffered because of the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Now it makes sense that as God comes to deliver Israel, the heat would be turned up and Pharaoh would grasp for the people. But what we see here and in the rest of Exodus 
is that there is a lordship battle going on. A lordship battle for the hearts and the lives and the worship and the service of the people of Israel. In many ways in this passage, we see Pharaoh being put in the place of God. If you remember in verse 1, we saw Moses saying, Thus saith the Lord, as he speaks for God. And then we skip down to verse 10, and the taskmasters, speaking on behalf of their God, say, Thus saith Pharaoh. We also see in previous chapters, the Lord is calling the people out of Egypt that they might serve him. And yet here, Pharaoh wants to keep Israel in Egypt to serve him. Thirdly, as we get to verse 15, you can read along with me. It says, And the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. This is what you do to your God. You cry out to your God for deliverance. They cried out to Pharaoh. And then look how they identify themselves. Why do you treat your servants like this? They didn't identify themselves as servants of God or children of God, but as servants of Pharaoh. There is a lordship battle going on for the hearts and the lives and the worship of the people of God. Both Pharaoh and Lord claim to be the ultimate authority. Both Pharaoh and the Lord want Israel's service and worship. And what we see in this passage is that Israel cries out to Pharaoh for deliverance and not the Lord. And Israel identifies themselves as servants of Pharaoh and not servants of the Lord. There is still a daily battle for the hearts of God's people. There is still a daily battle for your worship. You've probably heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. Every person worships every second of every day. We cannot not worship. It's what our hearts were created to do. Just like our lungs were created to breathe and cannot stop on their own, our hearts cannot stop worshiping. We worship every second of every day, and there is a battle for our worship. The Israels, the Israelites continued to worship Pharaoh and look to him for deliverance. What are you tempted to worship? Or who are you tempted to worship besides the Lord God? I have a friend who struggled mightily with anxiety. And as a result, he was often sick, often in pain, often suffering. He even almost died because of it, because of this severe anxiety. And so finally, he went to some counseling, some professional counseling, to find out why the anxiety had been so high in his life. And what he discovered through that counseling is that he had an unknown God in his life. He had the unknown God of winning other people's approval. You know, it's okay to want to be liked, but he needed to be liked. It was a God for him, a God that he had served, a God that he would not have called a God, but a God that was dominating his life. You know, it's amazing how we can take any good gift from God and turn it into an idol. We can take any good gift from God and worship it and serve it, and center our life around it. There are so many options out there. It could be sex, or money, or kids, or family. It could be alcohol. It could be business success. All of these good things. 
but that we turn into ultimate things and that we run to for deliverance when we're suffering. And so what are your idols? What are you tempted to worship instead of the Lord God? The author Steve Gallagher says of sin, which could also be said of idols, that they will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That is exactly what the Israelites are finding out. That their God, Pharaoh, who they may or may not have said verbally that he was God, but acted as if he was, that he wanted more from them than they could ever pay. See, our false gods are different than the one true and living God in that they always demand from us. They always take life from us. But the true God is a God of grace and love and mercy. And he wants your worship that you may have life and have life to the fullest. And so as we look at the suffering and how it begins, we're reminded that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of stress, that we are to run to the Lord and to no place else that we pray to him to deliver us and we trust him for the outcome. As we read on, we see as Pharaoh persecutes God's people, God's people respond. Verse 15 says, Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? The straw is given to your servants, yet, yet, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he, Pharaoh, said, you are idle. You're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Now, in this passage... Who is doing evil? It's Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is rejecting the Lord. He is oppressing God's people. And who's doing what's right? Moses and Aaron, right? They come and they confront Pharaoh with the word of the Lord to let the people go. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. They come out of the meeting with Pharaoh and it says this in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Pharaoh's strategy of undermining the Lord and undermining the Lord's messengers is working. The people are turning on each other. And instead of blaming Pharaoh for the evil that he had done, they had blamed Moses for the evil of Pharaoh. You see, the biggest problem Israel had isn't that they don't believe in God's messenger. Their biggest problem isn't even Pharaoh. The problem is that they don't trust God. They are people of a wavering faith. We, and we've seen this all along. When, when God calls Moses to go to Egypt to deliver the Israelites, Moses says to God, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And so God gives Moses's three, Moses three miracles, three signs to prove that the Lord is powerful and to prove that the Lord has sent Moses to be his agent of deliverance. 
And then again, at the end of Exodus chapter 4, just before this chapter, we see the people respond with worship and praise and belief. But the Israelites are much like us. They are a people of wavering faith. And as soon as God's plan meets some resistance, as soon as the persecution comes and the heat is turned up, they turn on God's messengers and turn on God himself. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger or don't kill the messenger. But it actually comes from a time of war in which there was this invisible code of conduct in which which one side would send a messenger to the other side because they didn't have email or fax or I don't even know how they communicate now, but they had none of those means, so they would have to send a person to go and deliver this message. And there was this invisible code of conduct that said, don't shoot the messenger. Because many times the messenger would come with a message that they didn't want to hear. And the temptation was to take out their anger and their fury on that messenger. But the problem is the messenger wasn't the authority. The messenger was merely the vessel that carried the message. The reason the Israelites turned on Moses, the messenger, isn't because they didn't like the message. Certainly they loved the message of deliverance. And I don't even think it's because they didn't like the messenger. But it's because they did not trust the one who was sending the message. They did not believe that God would fulfill his promise to deliver them out of Egypt. And so they turn on the messenger. You know, we have to be so careful not to use suffering as a litmus test for the will of God. You know, you probably heard it said, where God closes a door, he opens a window. Well, for Moses, the door was slammed shut and the window was boarded up. And yet this was still the will of God. And the people couldn't see through those things to know that God would fulfill his promise. You know, I'm guessing none of us will be prophets like Moses. None of us will hear, will see God in a burning bush and hear from him verbally in that way. But God has given us his word in his scriptures. This is the very word of God. And we are called to be committed to it, whether in good times or in bad, whether in suffering or in plenty. We are called to not be fair weather believers, but that we are to believe in God and trust in God and follow God, both in times of blessing and in times of suffering. We must follow the Lord at all times and follow his word. And so due to Moses' courageous obedience, Pharaoh oppresses God's people. And because Pharaoh oppresses God's people, God's people turn on God. God's messengers. And then the final link in this chain is that God's messengers question God's goodness. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. To Moses' credit, Moses turns to the Lord in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his pain. Somewhere along the line, he had developed an intimate relationship with the Lord God. And so he turns to him and he asks these questions, which is good. But even in his questions, 
we can see that Moses' attitude towards God is not free from sin. Moses' prayer seems to be accusations clothed in questions. Moses seems to stand in judgment of God and calls him on the carpet to account for his actions. Moses actually says to God, you have done evil. You have done evil. And he goes on to say, why did you send me? I told you I shouldn't have come. You see what's happening? And then he finishes by saying, you have not delivered your people. You have not fulfilled your promise at all. Not even a little bit. He's saying, God, do you know what you're doing? Do you see the suffering? Things have not gone as planned. It's the same way that the foreman blamed Moses. Now Moses is turning to blame God. Moses is angry with God. He's impatient with God. He's honest with God. And while it's not perfectly righteous, everything that he says, it was already in his heart. And so it was good that he shared that with God. You know, I can resonate with Moses. There are many times when things don't go as planned that I turn to God and I say, Lord, do you know what you're doing? Are you here? Come on, what's going on? Why have you brought me into this suffering? I've shared this story before, but I think it was long ago enough that I can share it again. When Trish and I got married, I worked for Young Life in Columbia, Missouri, and it's a ministry to high school students. And ministry went very well. Um, and then after that, we left there. We moved up to the western side of the state of Wisconsin. And I tried to start up a business. It didn't go well. I was terrible at it, and I hated it. And so it went under. And about that time, I was struggling with unemployment and all of the things that come with it, the dehumanization of unemployment and wanting to provide for my family and things of that sorts. And at that time, a job opened up for Young Life in Eau Claire. And I thought, this is what God's plan is. He brought me here to get this job. I'm perfect for this job. And so I applied and I knew the other applicant as well. And I came in and I had a pretty good resume to give. And the other applicant, which I knew, had a checkered past. And so I thought, this is a shoe, and I got this. Well, I still remember the phone call as I sat on my bed and picked up my phone and heard the committee member tell me we chose the other guy. And I said, not in my head, but out loud to this man, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. In reality, I thought God had made a mistake. I thought, God, do you know what you're doing? This is, this is all set up. This is the direction it's supposed to go. This is why you called me up here to Wisconsin to go and serve in this way. Lord, do you have any idea what you are doing? And for the next several months, struggled with the thought that, does, is God even attentive? Does he know what's going on? You know, it is right for us to come to God in the midst of the brokenness of our life, in the midst of the confusion of the li our life, and come to him in humility and say, Lord, what's going on? Can you show me what's happening? I don't understand. God, what is your plan? Lord, help me to rest and to trust in you. But we shouldn't come to him with accusations. We shouldn't come to him calling him on the carpet and saying, Lord, you have to answer to me. But we should come honestly saying, Lord, help me understand. 
What is going on? What are you doing? You know, when life doesn't go our way, when we suffer with disappointment, we have to go to God. There is no other place we can go. We have to go to him in humility, trusting that he knows more than we do. Because whether we believe it or not, God has all things under his control. Even in the midst of suffering, God is working all things for his glory and for our good. You know, as we look at Exodus chapter 5, we may not see it in this chapter. But it's amazing because right around it, we see the sovereign, glorious plan of God. If you look just before Exodus chapter 5, you look in verse 21 of chapter 4. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses and the people were surprised by Pharaoh's rejection. But God wasn't surprised. This was all a part of God's plan. And and we can see some ways as as the story plays out how this is a part of God's plan. I mean, God's glory is demonstrated through the plagues. But we also see even in the Israelites, they need to purge some false idols in their hearts. And God is using this suffering to do it. And so we see before, but we also see after as we read into the next chapter, which Chad will be covering next week. In Exodus 6.1, it starts by this. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then God goes on and he retells the story of Abraham like he has done a million times before. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and I will bless the children of Abraham. And I will deliver these people just as I had promised. And so God comes to him again. Not rebuking him, but gently loving his very confused servant and saying, I still have good plans and I will accomplish my purposes. You know, we may not have a God that we will always understand, but we have a God that we can always trust, even when we don't understand. And so we must run to him, we must come to him, and we must trust him. Let me end with this. I still remember the first time my oldest son, Corbin, was out either riding a bike or running around on the pavement, and he fell, and he got up, and he had, you know, all those scars all over him, and he's crying, and he's bleeding, and I pick him up, and I I take him into the house, and I take him into the bathroom, and I set him on the sink, and then I open the medicine cabinet, and I, I reach in for the hydrogen peroxide. And I pull it out, and as I fill up the little cap with hydrogen peroxide to clean out the wounds, Corbin asks me the question, Dad, is this going to hurt? And of course, the answer is, yes, Corbin, this is going to hurt. But this is going to cleanse you. This will be good for you. Corbin, this is going to hurt. But trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm your father and I love you. And it is through this suffering that you will be cleansed. 
You know, as we look at this passage, it is often a very confusing passage that Moses is obedient and the response is suffering. But when we face suffering, we must be careful not to run to false idols, but to run to the one true and living God. We must be careful not to blame God, but to trust God. You know, I'm guessing neither of these points are new or earth-shattering to you. But do you do them? When you are suffering, where do you run? How do you medicate? Run to the Lord. Trust the Lord, even in the midst of suffering. Jesus, of course, is our perfect example of this. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus was in the garden sweating blood because he knew the suffering that was coming before him. And he comes to God in prayer and he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the midst of suffering, Jesus cries out for relief. But in the end, trust his heavenly Father. And it is through his suffering and through his pain that we have been delivered, that we have been cleansed, that we have been brought into the kingdom of God. You see, God is in the business of turning agony into triumph and turning shame into celebration. And so we must come to him trusting him. You may not know why you suffer for doing what is right, but what we do know from the scriptures is that we have a God who loves us. And cares for us. A God we can and must run to in prayer. A God we can trust. Knows what he is doing. Even when we're suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. And God, I pray especially for those who are here in our suffering. And especially those who are suffering for doing what is right. For doing what is good. And Lord God, I pray that they would remember the story of your love, just as you recounted for Moses. That they would remember of your love and your grace and your faithfulness. And that although in this short term it seems so hard and so difficult, that you see the broader picture, God. And that you have a great plan of deliverance. Lord, help us to rest in that glorious truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.